Okay. Uh, With that said, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24. Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to look at verse 24 and 25, but I'm going to begin reading at verse 19. We've been in a series the last several weeks considering verses 19 through 25, really focused on um, this whole sentence, but trying to break down this sentence. If you were not aware, verses 19 to 25 in the original Greek are one sentence. So we're just breaking that down, the parts of it as we walk through it. So look at verse 19 where I'll begin reading. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let me pray. Father, we ask we ask that you would help us to receive your word for what it is, the word of the Lord not only through the apostle to the church in the first century, but, but by your spirit to us, your church, even now. May we hear this command, the command of the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, superintended by his spirit for us. May we hear it and receive it with joy. May we be obedient to it. May we understand that these commands, these duties have been enjoined as consequences of our faith in the gospel. And they've been given to us that we might persevere in the faith, that we might continue to hold fast to Christ, that we might continue to draw near in worship, that we might see you at the end of all things in all your glory and so be with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I thought I'd start off by telling you all a bit about what's concerned me most about the pandemic and the lockdown. In other words, what have I and really all the elders been most concerned with throughout the last six months? I'll give you a list of things that we've wrestled with. One, we've been concerned for the physical health of our people. We were particularly concerned at the beginning of the pandemic before we knew as much as we know now about the kind of language we were hearing about what was happening in places like Italy and would that come here. We've been concerned for the economic uncertainty that our people have faced as a result of all this. I just spoke to a brother the other day who was on the verge of losing a multi-generational family business. He maybe has two or three weeks left before it's all lost after decades of having a family business. I have been concerned for the damage to the education of children and what that means for their future and the future of our nation. I'm not so concerned for the kids whose parents, like many of you, are going to attend to making sure they're well-educated. I'm concerned for the many children who weren't getting any help from their parents prior to the pandemic and now aren't getting any help from their schools really either. I've been concerned for the socio-political effects of the rising tide of frustration and anger that has followed in the wake of this pandemic. You're seeing it all around. We have been concerned for the psychological effects of social isolation 
and economic destruction and its effects upon mental illness, suicide, and domestic violence. These have all been concerns weighing on us. I'm sure they've weighed on most of you as well. But above all, we have been deeply concerned, most deeply concerned, about the apostasy of members of our church and of other churches. God preserves his people from apostasy by the means of grace, the preaching of the word, prayer, the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism being administered, those means of grace. He preserves us from apostasy by those means of grace being administered in the gathered church. That's how he preserves us. The more church members are isolated from one another, from the gathering, the more their love will grow cold, the more selfish they will become, the further from the Lord they will fall. For the first time in the history of our church, we've had three discipline meetings with the elders in three weeks. This is a real concern regarding that kind of apostasy among the Hebrew Christians. In our text today, we see the apostles' concern for that. Look at what follows verse 25. You say, well, verse 26. Yes, but look what it says. What follows? Look at Hebrews 10, 26. After saying not to, not to neglect meeting together, giving these three commands, he says this. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Is that clear enough for you? What his concern is? As pastors or elders, our greatest concern is the folks who are forsaking the gathering of themselves together. This concern has weighed heavy on me since April. Look at Hebrews 13, 17. I've pointed this out to you all before. Obey your leaders. This is speaking about those who lead you in the word of God. These are the leaders in the church. And submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Listen, as a pastor or elder in Christ's church, I carry the weight of your souls before the Lord and give an account for you. That's sobering. That's sobering. That is no small burden. No small burden. And when your government, when your government commands me to stop gathering you together, to stop gathering together Christ's sheep for the sake of their physical health, when your government tells you that shepherds shall let the sheep wander, lest the shepherds gather them together and physically kill them. As a pastor, you feel the overwhelming weight of that moment. Should I gather them together and potentially some of them die? Or should I let the sheep wander and certainly watch some of them go into soul-damning apostasy? I wanted to cry out, yes, they may physically die. But if I just let them wander, they may stray right off to their damnation. As your pastors, we could go with separation for a short time, but we refused to tolerate it for months and months. We just refused. And so we searched for a way to gather you, first in grace groups, then a couple times outside, and and now here for a time and starting next week 30. That's the plan now. The week after that, we hope the same. We'll see. 
But my concern in the sermon is not what the government has brought about by the pandemic. Here's my concern. My concern is what is for what the members of the body are choosing for themselves. The concern of this text is that you do not forsake the church gathering. Now we're planning on launching a building campaign. So what does any of this have to do with a building campaign? The answer is simple. We need a place to gather regularly. That's it. That's our church's vision for the building campaign. The whole purpose for us talking about a building, we want to gather regularly in a place that we can't be kicked out by whoever the owner happens to be. Look, we, the elders don't have some kind of field of dreams mentality. We have a vision. If you build it, they will come. We don't. I didn't come down from a mountain like Moses with some new plan that you need to get on board with. We simply know that Christ commands us to gather, to receive the word and sacraments, to sing and to pray, to encourage one another, and to send folks out to the harvest field, and we need a place to do that. So this afternoon, we're going to look at the importance of the church gathering for the Christian life. And here's my central contention. Christians are those who lovingly consider their brothers and sisters in Christ and thus who gather regularly for mutual encouragement. As we've dealt with this one sentence in Hebrews 10, 19 through 25 thus far, we've considered the foundation of the church in Hebrews 10, 19 through 21 and the church's joyful duties that we've seen in Verses 22, let us draw near in faith for worship. And verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope in Christ. This morning, we want to look at the third duty. The duty, listen, to lovingly consider one another. To lovingly consider one another in the church. So we'll look first at the duty to lovingly consider one another. And second, at the necessity of gathering regularly to encourage one another. In other words, you can't love another person you never gather with to encourage. So let's look first at the duty to lovingly consider one another. Look at verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now notice that first phrase, And let us consider. To consider means to think carefully about, to contemplate, to pay thoughtful attention to, to care for, to focus your mind and your energy upon. Consider, contemplate, pay thoughtful attention to. This same word comes up, the same Greek word comes up in Hebrews 3. Look there, keep your hand in Hebrews 10. Look over at Hebrews 3. And verse 1, Hebrews 3 and verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Let us consider Jesus. Let us pay thoughtful attention to, to contemplate Think carefully about Jesus. Let us focus our mind and energy upon Jesus. Now, let us consider one another. Let us consider Christ. Let us consider his church. Let us consider one another. We pay careful attention to Christ. Hebrews 3.1. We pay careful attention to his church. Hebrews 10.24. We love the head, so we love the body. We love the groom, so we love his bride. Look at 1 Peter. Keep your hand in Hebrews 10. Look over at 1 Peter. Just go over a couple of books. After Hebrews comes James and then 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, and look at verse 20. He, that's speaking of Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, 
who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth from a sincere, for a sincere what? He has purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for what? A sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. See what we pay careful attention to Christ and we pay careful attention to the church because we've been saved by Christ, born again, and we love him. So we've been born again to love his people, the church. Look at 1 John, 1 John and chapter 4. Verses 7 through 11 form a kind of bracketing that with a repeated language. But let's look at 1 John 4, verses 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this, the love of God, was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the wrath bearer for our sins. Beloved, now here comes a repeat of verse 7, in a little bit different, but pretty close. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Beloved, let us love one another. How did God love us? He gave his son for us. We we're his enemies. We were opposed to him, and he gave his son to lay down his own life for us. So, brothers, we ought to love one another. We ought to lay down our lives for our neighbor. We ought to put ourselves aside for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We love Christ. We love his church. We love Christ at expense to ourselves because he loved us at great expense to himself. We love his church at expense to ourselves because he loved his church at great expense to himself. And the Holy Spirit, whom Christ had without measure, has now been poured out on you and given you new life so that you bear the same fruit Jesus bore. You bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love. Hear that first one. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness self-control. Let us love one another. Let us love one another. What's the purpose of our considering one another? Really, this language is of considering one another is driving at this notion that we love one another. You pay careful attention to those whom you love. You just do. Parents, you know this better than anyone. You have children, you pay careful attention to them. You think of them often, sometimes far more than you wish you would. Right? Do you pay careful attention like that to Christ's church? To your brothers and sisters in Christ? That's what you're being commanded to do. And what's the purpose of our considering one another? Why do we do so? Look at Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 and verse 24. Again, just turn back there. And let us consider how to stir one another up one another to love and good works. See, it's our loving consideration of the other that then stirs the other up to love and good works. That's the goal. We consider, I consider, maybe all week long, when I come to my grace group on Wednesday night, what's happening with these people's lives in my group? I'm thinking about them. How can I stir them up to love and good works? How can I be an encouragement to them? When I come to Sunday morning gathering or Sunday afternoon gathering in this case, thinking about Christ's people, how can I come to stir them up to love and good works? Sometimes it's just my presence there.
We're doing so with the purpose of stirring up one another to love and good works. To stir up. What's that word mean? It's, it's, to, it's to rouse someone to activity. It's, um, in the negative, to provoke or incite. To incite someone. It's, it's kind of inciting them to intense emotion or motivation. This word for inciting someone or stirring one another up is actually the same word that you find in Proverbs 27:17. You guys, when I refer to the LXX, that's a short that's short for the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that Jesus and the apostles would read. It was around before them. Listen to the Greek word. Uh, same Greek word is in Proverbs 27:17. Listen to what that text says. Proverbs 27 you don't have to turn there. I'll turn there. My pages don't keep sticking together. Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. You guys heard that language? Iron sharpens iron, as so one man sharpens another. That that word for sharpening, the iron sharpening iron, is that word to incite, to stir up. It's the same Greek word. We're inciting someone. An early church father, Chrysostom, they call him the golden mouth, the preacher. Chrysostom observed this. As iron sharpens iron, so also fellowship increases love. For a stone, if a stone rubbed against a stone sends forth fire, how much more person in contact with person. And we are to incite one another to love and good works. The Hebrews had stirred one another up to love and good works in the past. You're aware of that, right? Look at Hebrews 6, chapter uh, chapter 6 and verse 10. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. You hear that? They... They have been inciting one another to love and good works, stirring one another up to love and good works. That's something they have been doing. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. In other words, these were a people who served one another, who loved one another, who sacrificed for one another. They thoughtfully considered one another. And their consideration of one another, their example of loving one another, was spurring others to love and good works. You understand this, right? You understand what it means when the example of another spurs you to love and good works. Does it not spur you to action when you see another person love well? Probably the most dramatic example of this outside of the Christian context, I have no idea whether these people are Christians or not, but just in the context of the world that I saw this week, many of you may have seen, you saw these two deputies in Los Angeles, who were shot. Male and a female deputy, both serving about a year. Man walks up and shoots them in cold blood. The female deputy is shot through her face and is bleeding out all over herself. And, so, and, and the neighbors, the neighbors are watching and laughing, videoing it and mocking, not helping. Meanwhile, this female deputy takes her partner, is that you call him, good enough, to the side and is applying a tourniquet to him. Applying a tourniquet to him, watching out for other threats and calling in the accident while bleeding out all over her own shirt, being shot through the face. And I watched the video of this. And, and I was inspired, incited to love and good works. But that's, that's human right there. 
what those people are doing who are mocking and laughing as they video, that is inhuman. What that woman is doing is human. That is the kind of thing that makes others watch and think, I want to be like that. If you watched it, you were inspired. You were incited to love and good works. It stirred something in you to want to love your neighbor more sacrificially. Well, we are to stir up one another in the church. But how do we do that? How do we stir up one another to love and good works? That leads to my second point, the necessity of gathering regularly to encourage one another. The necessity of gathering regularly to encourage one another. Look back at Hebrews 10 and verse 25. After the apostle has said, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. We get this phrase, not neglecting to meet together. As is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you'd see the day drawing near. Note the connection between verse 25 and verse 24. How do we stir one another up to love and good works? Well, we're told, do not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. Rather, meet together and encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We must not neglect the meeting. We must rather encourage. What what does that mean? To neglect something is to cease doing it, to abandon it, to be a deserter. This participle for neglect is a covenantal term in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's a covenantal term that means to forsake or abandon the Lord's covenant. It's used to abandon covenantal obligations like the people abandoning their covenant Lord or like a husband abandoning his covenant obligations to his wife. And we're told not to abandon or forsake or neglect what? The meeting, the gathering, quite literally the assembly. Now there's an article here. It's not just don't neglect meeting together or to meet together. It's the meeting. Unfortunately, the article has been dropped in the translation. We are not to abandon or forsake or neglect the gathering, the assembly. It's not a word that refers to the universal church, all Christians everywhere. It's not a word that refers to you meeting up with some friends at Starbucks. This is a word that refers to the physical gathering of a body of believers. It's a reference to the local church and her gathering together. It's only used one other place in the New Testament. It's used in First Thess- or excuse me, Second Thessalonians 2.1, and it's speaking of gathering together with Christ in the air. It's also used in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to gather at the place of meeting or the tabernacle. This is the regular gathering of a local church for exhortation in the word and to encourage one another. That was first participated in every day, every day by the church. Then regularly on the Lord's day, the first day of the week, Sunday. The danger of forsaking the gathering of church is that you may be forsaking the Lord of the church. That's what he's going on to say in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately. But, but does a person have to be a, to, to go to church to be a Christian? No. He also doesn't have to go home to be married. But what kind of marriage is that? What sort of love for Christ and his body do you have when you are never gathering with the church? Are you becoming more like Christ if you don't love the people for whom he laid down his life? Can you really ultimately claim that the spirit of God is in you if you don't love the church? Because the spirit of God is in you to make you like Christ who loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
Or are you becoming more like him if you don't love his people? Those who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit are being made like Christ. Thus, they love what Christ loves. Christ loves the church. To fail to be concerned for one another in the church of which you are a member is to be self-centered and egocentric. It's all about me. It is selfish. Philip Hughes, a commentator, Philip Edgecombe Hughes, a commentator, said this. Self-love breeds the spirit of isolationism. You want to be isolated? You know why? Because you love yourself. You're selfish, egocentric, committed to you. If you do not love your fellow believers, you will find no need to associate with them. You won't desire the gathering of yourselves. Rather, you'll find things to hold against them. You just will. Or you just won't care about them at all. Worse, you may, you may say, I like them really well, uh, but I'm just so utterly selfish, I don't have time to consider them. You just do what's best for you. This has some application to the COVID-19 situation. Some. For some of you, there must come a point at which you must judge that your eternal soul and the eternal soul of the other members of the body of Christ is more valuable than your physical health. Just must. I'm not telling folks what wisdom call. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not telling you what wisdom call to make about when to return to gathering if you're physically vulnerable. It's not what I'm addressing. What I am saying is that when you make that wisdom call, you must not lose sight of the most, of the most important part in the equation of making that decision. The most important part in the equation of making that decision is not your physical health. It's your eternal soul and the eternal souls of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Further, I, 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 maybe I should go on to stress, I'm largely speaking of those who find any excuse to forsake the gathering. The pandemic's just the latest. There are some people who are live streaming right now who are vulnerable, who before the pandemic were every week in church, every week in grace group, constantly dedicated to the body. I'm not talking about those folks. I'm talking about people who just are constantly finding an excuse not to gather, and the pandemic's the latest one. Beloved, gathering for worship should be your excuse for missing everything else. Should be your excuse, oh, I want to go to the beach. Gathering for worship should be your excuse for missing that. I want to watch the football game. Gathering for church should be your excuse for missing that. To forsake the gathering is a selfish act. To forsake the gathering is an act that Christ never participates in. Jesus never forsakes the gathering. Why should you? If Christ is present for the gathering by the Spirit, where else would you want to be? If your brothers and sisters in Christ, those with whom you'll spend eternity, are present for the gathering, where else would you want to be? We're commanded to gather. It's not an option. It's not an option. But can't I be a good Christian and not go to church? I can do that, right? No. No. You cannot. You cannot. Good Christians are not selfish and disobedient. By definition. They're not. Folks never ask this question about other sins, by the way. Listen. Can I be a good Christian and regularly commit adultery? No. Can I be a good Christian and regularly murder? No. Can I be a good Christian and commit theft on an, a normal basis? No. How about lying, just constantly lying and being, no. What if I just covet everything my neighbor owns? Can I still be a good Christian? No. No, we know that. Can I dishonor my parents? Still be, no. No. 
Just like you can't disobey any command unrepentantly and habitually and then say, I'm a good Christian who just happens to be habitually, unrepentantly sinning. Those kind of Christians are the kinds of Christians that we excommunicate. And I'll say that with any joy. That's the truth. We know it's ridiculous when we apply it to other sins. Somehow when we apply it to this one, it doesn't seem so bad. Well, folks, when you forsake the gathering, you participate in spiritual adultery. I'm not talking about forsaking the gathering because you're sick or forsaking the gathering because a baby was just born. But it doesn't take six months, by the way, for your kids to be ready for church. Just as a side note, I think my wife and I went out to dinner the day after Jared was born. Um, I, 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 now it's like the government gives everybody six months off. There's a baby born. Husband can stay home. Wife can stay home. Everybody needs to stay home and just worship that child. It's absurd. Just knock it off. That child is going to think it's a little God by the time this is over, if you're not careful. We're to encourage one another. And all the more as we see the day drawing near. Do you hear the urgency? All the more, verse 25, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We are to encourage, but encouraging one another. And all the more... As you see the day drawing near. Do you hear the urgency here? There's an urgency placed upon the command to not forsake the gathering. But rather to come together and encourage one another even more as you see the day drawing near. There's an eschatological urgency. Christ could return for judgment at any time. And we don't want to be found in apostasy. And we don't want others in the body of Christ to be found in apostasy. One of the major reasons why we need to want to get up and go gather with the believers is not just for ourselves, but because we have in mind we're considering others. And we don't want anybody found in the condition of apostasy upon the return of Christ. That's why right after he says, even more as the day drawing near, he turns and says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This is heavy. Look at Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day. Exhort one another every day. Encourage one another every day. As long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you know what he means by that word today? As long as it's called today. That's another eschatological way of speaking. What he's saying is we're in this era in which God is saving people. That's today. Tomorrow. Jesus will return. So exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. That, why? Why are you caring for the other? That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We should have a real aversion to apostasy. Listen, our aversion to apostasy ought to be real for ourselves, but it must also be an aversion to apostasy for the sake of our fellow church members. We care about them too. Thus, we do not abandon the gathering. Rather, we come together to encourage one another. We come together to encourage one another. What does it look like to encourage? To encourage, if you break down the word, in and courage, it's literally to inspire courage. 
to put courage into someone else, if you will, to strengthen or cause hope in others. You're strengthening them to continue to forsake the world and to hold fast to Christ. It's what you're doing. You're strengthening them. How do you do this? Well, you generally do it through love and good works. You serve the body of Christ. Others see it, and they're strengthened to do more of the same. Let me give you some examples of how others have done that for me. I'll start with Jeff and Kim Bell. They decided to start a prayer meeting on Sunday mornings for a time for the time um, for the time being for the church to pray, and a small group of folks gather with them. I think Amber leads music, right? Just knowing that, we didn't gather that together as pastors. Just knowing that encouraged me as a pastor. It encouraged me. It helped me remember that the Lord carries the burden of the church, ultimately not me. And that his spirit is at work in the members of the church, not just me. Jeff Afonso has on more than one occasion, on more than one occasion, allowed me to fly folks down to radius on his corporate plane. Now, um, you might say, I bet that's an encouragement to fly on that. (laughs) But that's not what I'm going to say is the encouraging part, although I don't mind it at all. (laughs) The part that encouraged me was that when you get down to the border, someone has to pick you up at the airport and take you across the border and then drive you back to the airport and drop you off and drive all the way back to Bakersfield. And Jeff, who owns that corporate jet, if you will, is the one who drives all the way down the night before, stays in a hotel, gets up the next morning, picks us up, drives across the board, drives back, puts us on the plane. We fly comfortably back, and he sits in the San Diego, L.A. traffic all the way back. He could be riding in it. Instead, he's sitting in the long drives in traffic for the sake of others. That's humbling. It's encouraging. Joel and Tammy Hepner's kids stepped up in the early days of Radius. Radius, the first after the first year, was financially upside down significantly. We didn't know how we would survive. And then I would drive by the corner at Palm and Rudd. And I would see their kids out on the street corner selling drinks and cookies and whatever, raising money to keep Radius going over and over. I was encouraged by that. One time, Joel was actually in India, and Tammy had to get the 10 kids to church on her own, and their family van broke down. And she got all her 10 kids on bicycles, and they rode to church, and they were early. (laughs) We weren't close. I was encouraged by that. Wow, this woman is eager to be under the preaching of the word. If my vehicle broke down and I was stuck with the kids, I'd have been like, well, football, right? (laughs) I don't know. But encourage me. Occasionally, Tamara Erbrick and Jill Eckberg send me emails telling me how helpful the sermon was. And every, every time they send me this, you know, I'm praying for you this way. I'm so encouraged in this way. That's deeply encouraging just to continue on. Jordan Fitch stepped up to lead music with a week's notice. We basically met with him and said, Jordan, the other guy just left. You want to take over the ministry? He said, absolutely not. I do not like doing music. We said, that's okay. Serve the church and do it. He said, okay. (laughs) joyfully has taken that on. We never have to think about it. He serves there in an exemplary manner. Manner. He didn't get paid for that. You know that? Our church hasn't paid a musician in a long time. He does it for free. I've seen Brendan Murphy and Matt Bell putting countless hours to help our church get through COVID. Countless hours. You don't know this, but there's more than one time that everything went down in our system, and Brendan had to stay up the entire night Saturday night to try to get it fixed. He had to pull an all-nighter to make sure you were able to hear the word of God the next day. Matt worked his tail off to make sure we were unable, we were, excuse me, able to have a worship service on multiple occasions. 
that's encouraging. That strengthens you to keep serving. Dwayne Anderson, one of our deacons, has been putting numerous hours drawing and redrawing building plans, getting criticized, getting new views, and just humbly continuing to redraw, 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 finding the best options uh, for landing a permanent home. Meanwhile, his wife, Carol, is doing all the um, counting of the money, the recording of that in the system, helping uh, uh, organize women's groups. They're not paid for any of that. They just want to serve the church. It's encouraging. I had a gentleman in our church call me to donate significantly to the church. He asked to remain anonymous, so he will remain anonymous. But he told me that he and his wife would like to give away all the money they have to Christ's church before they die. That was encouraging. I sat next to Marsha Shaw before her death. Marsha died this year. I sat there with her at her side before her death. And she told me that she knew she was going home to be with the Lord and she just couldn't wait to see him. That was encouraging. That strengthened me. Our elders, deacons, and grace group leaders are continually giving their time and energy for the sake of the body of Christ. They serve generally without thanks. And demonstrate love for Christ in his word that humbles me regularly. The elders have been dedicated to making sure the pastors are well cared for. I hear so many of my brother pastors in other places struggling in ways that I don't face because of the encouragement of the saints at Sovereign Grace. Look, these are just a few small ideas I thought up on Friday morning. And I had more, but I got tired of asking everybody, do I have permission to use your name in the service? So I just stopped. I've barely begun to mention the numerous ways in which you're an encouragement. What I want you to hear is that your presence at corporate worship, your presence in your grace group, your presence in a congregational meeting is an encouragement to others. It's an encouragement to others. Your time and effort in considering others stirs others up to love and good works. The Lord is pleased to use you in so many small ways to cause his church to continue to hold fast to Christ. So when you ask about attending church, don't first consider yourself. Consider one another. Yes, come because you need the grace of God offered in word and sacrament, but also come because your brothers and sisters in Christ need you there to encourage them. Sovereign Grace's sermon has largely been a reflection, I know it's largely been a reflection on our duty in light of Christ's work um, on our behalf. I just want to remind you, though, that the desire to gather together is a spirit-given desire that follows knowing Christ and the grace of God in him. It doesn't proceed knowing him. So I come back to the question, do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know the grace that you've been shown in Christ? Do you know how wicked you are in and of yourselves and how you have been gratuitously shown kindness by God in his son. If so, then you know how weak you are, on your, you are on your own, and you know the same is true about your fellow church members. You know that. So you gather to encourage one another, to strengthen one another. You encourage them with your love and good works to the end that they are stirred up to love and good works. But above all, We exhort one another when we come together. We exhort one another to continue to hold on to Christ. After giving the Hebrew Christians a history of Old Testament saints who trusted in Christ in order to stir them up, the apostle gives this charge in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... 
all these Old Testament saints that encourage us. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us keep our eyes on Christ and as those who do, let us lovingly consider one another. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would continue to, as a body, look to your son, be thankful for the salvation that we know in him. Be thankful for the privilege of gathering together to stir one another up to love and good works. We pray, Father, that you would work in us by the Spirit in such a way that we would look to Christ and that as a result of that, we would, in faith, draw near to worship him. That we would hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That we would consider one another how to stir one another up to love and good works, not forsaking the gathering, but coming together to encourage one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. We pray that you would cause this work by your spirit in our church. We give thanks for the many ways in which you already have, the many stories I did not even touch on in the ways people here have been an encouragement to one another. We pray that we would continue to encourage one another to look to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.